Well, good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be here this morning as we open up the Word of God and continue in our series through the book of Ezra. Uh, if you do have a Bible, you can turn to Ezra 8. Uh, if you would like, you may use the Pew Bible. That's in uh, page number 394 on our Pew Bible. So you can check that out there. Well, we've been in the series in Ezra now for a little while, and we're talking about rebuilding. Particularly, we're looking at the rebuilding of God's temple. And in the church, we're talking about how is it that God is calling us to rebuild as a church? How are we rebuilding in this time where God has placed us in this context to build for God's glory and to establish his kingdom? And we are talking about this in the context of this book. At this point in history, we need to understand that what's happening here is something like a new exodus. We know that uh, back during the time of Moses, uh, the people of God were in bondage for 400 years under the ruthless arm of Pharaoh. The Lord our God delivered by his stronger arm and brought his people into the promised land. Now at this point in Ezra, the people of God are under bondage under a new king in Persia. After 70 years of bondage, first in Babylon and Persia, uh, the Persian army took over. Uh, These people have been delivered now by the mighty hand of God, and they have been brought back into the promised land. But this deliverance is very different than the deliverance in Egypt. I mean, think about it. In Egypt, they're in bondage because of the sin of Pharaoh. Here, the people of God were in bondage due to their own sin. In Egypt, they were chased out and hunted by Pharaoh. Here, they were sent out and provided for by King Artaxerxes. Quite literally, the king not only sends them back to the land, but provides everything they need for their flourishing and to rebuild in the land of Egypt, uh, land of Israel. We also saw that before, when the Israelites were delivered from Pharaoh, they were conquering the nation of Israel. But here, they're coming back as a conquered people. And the real question on the land is, are we going to make it in this promised land? Last time we looked at the call of Ezra to rebuild God's people by God's word. And we saw in Ezra 7 that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He was sent by King Artaxerxes for this very purpose, to make inquiries about the law of God, to make inquiries in Judah and Jerusalem. He was sent to see how they are ordering their life according to God's word. And this meant discerning the word of God, but it also meant discerning the lives of the people and encouraging them in some ways, but also correcting them in others. He was also sent to carry the silver from King Artaxerxes that he donated, as well as the resources from the exiled Israelites. King Artaxerxes made a decree that anyone of the people of Israel that would like among the priests or the Levites may return with Ezra to do the work of God in that place. He gathered these volunteers and prepared to go from Persia to the Promised Land. And that brings us to our text this morning in Ezra 8. I'll begin reading in verse 15. As I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found none there of the sons of Levi, then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joreb and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Iddo, 
the leading man at the place of Gasiphia, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Gasiphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Eli, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, there, these were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. This is the word of God, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates the dividing soul and spirit, joint tomorrow. It points us to the glory of Christ. Let's pray to him now. O oh Lord God, King of the universe, the Savior of all who trust in Jesus, we come to your word as poor beggars, desperately needing the hope and encouragement that only Christ can bring. So open our eyes to see the beauty of his glory and help us to trust in his grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. These words were echoed out of the pulpit as William Carey sought to convince the Baptist Association in Nottingham, England. He called them to reach the world with the gospel. To say it kindly, the Church of England was focused almost exclusively on its own country and nation. They neglected the peoples of the world. But to be a little bit more direct, it seemed as though they believed the peoples of other nations were too brutal or too sinful to be reached by the gospel. They focused their hands on their own Jerusalem while God was reaching his hand across the ends of the earth. You see, William Carey sought to move them out of their missional paralysis to promote the gospel among the people of India and all peoples across the world. Preaching from Isaiah 54, 2 through 3, he called them to an expansive vision. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. William Carey called these people to a God-sized vision to behold the greatness of God and attempt great work for his glory. He called them to see God's faithful hand and to live faith-filled lives. And throughout Ezra, we see the power of God's faithful hand. We see this in Ezra 7.6, 7.9, 7.28, 8.18, and in 8.22 it says, The good hand of our God is for good for all who seek him. If we will do a great work for God, we must seek his faithful hand and live faith-filled lives. But what does a faith-filled life look like? What does it look like to trust the Lord and to move forward by faith? 
What does it look like for us to go into the difficult places in Lynchburg and the nation and the world? Does stepping, God stepping forward and doing everything mean I step back and do nothing? Does this promoting of a vision distract from God's promise? Does my planning deny God's leading? Does wise preparation deny the Spirit's powerful demonstration? We'll see today that great expectation from God directs great preparation for God. What must we do to prepare for a great work of God in our day? First of all, we must deploy great leaders. As Ezra gathers the people to return to the land, he notices that someone is missing. He notices that, look look down your text, look at verse 815. It says, I gather to them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camp three days. He's pausing here, and he's looked around the people that are with him. And as he reviewed the people and the priests, he found that none of the sons of Levi were there. You see, the Levites were set apart by God to do the work in the temple. They rebuilt the temple, and now they do not have ready workers. And this is a real problem. Maybe the Levites have become comfortable in Persia. Maybe they have gotten used to a predictable life of relative ease with their families. Maybe they didn't want to deal with a mess of bloody animals. Could you blame them? Possibly they were avoiding the futility of seemingly menial labor to keep the temple clean and shiny. Or maybe they were guarding their schedules from extended time away from family as they served night and day. We have seen in our own day many businesses have closed, not because of a lack of demand, but because of a lack of diligent labor. And when Jesus looked at the crowds, he saw that the people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. And what did he do? He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He says that the demand of hurting people is great, but the supply of loving laborers is few. Now, before we judge the Levites for not serving willingly, we need to ask the question, what keeps us from serving God's church and God's mission? Have I become too comfortable? Am I unwilling to sacrifice? Have I become too prideful to care for others? Am I unwilling to spend time with sinners that they too may be saved? You see, great expectation from God demands great preparation of leaders. We need leaders both at the head and leaders on the ground. Leaders at the head not only refers to heads of household, that's for sure the case, but they also refer to people that are functioning as heads of the community. As a head plans with discernment and directs the body to action, so these men discern biblical wisdom and direct the community towards God's ways. They were to first become men of insight in the word of God and then become men who inspire action. You see, leaders at the head take seriously the call of wisdom In Proverbs chapter 2, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Ezra gathers these 12 leading men who go to the place of Casiphia. 
And here they discover and deploy workers for the mission. You can see this group of people kind of like a search committee of sorts who stir up the Levites to a great vision that they would serve willingly. And if we will see a great work of God in this generation, then we must recruit workers to go to the harvest. This means our leading men and women in this congregation must diligently raise up the next generation of leaders. We must go to the peoples and places of Lynchburg and beyond. We must engage with non-Christians. We must establish new Christians in the faith. We must equip growing Christians. And we must empower going Christians to go to the harvest of God. Now, this is going to definitely require our elders and deacons to diligently seek to replace themselves. And I just want to ask this question. If you are an officer in this church, who is going to carry on the work when you leave? You see, this requires also parents to disciple their children, that they would catch a passion for the glory and grace of God. This requires leaders in men's ministry and women's ministry to expand the reach of leadership to the next generation of leaders among us. You see, they sought ministers from Ido for the house of God, and there was a great response. Look at verse 18. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen's. Also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and the officials had set apart to attend the Levites. And these were all mentioned by name. We see here mentioned that there were three key leaders and 220 temple servants. That's a church. According to David, the temple servants were set apart to attend the Levites and facilitate the Levitical duties. These temple servants were leaders on the ground. They did the detailed daily work of the temple. They policed the temple by guarding the gates. They also made sure that the sanctuary was clean and bright. They chopped wood and they hauled water for the congregation. And for the church to accomplish a great work, we need people on the ground carrying out the many missional tasks of the church. For worship, we need greeters at the door. We need bulletins handed out. We need people to give direction and members to welcome attenders. That means all of us together. For discipleship, we need not only teachers who teach, but we also need engaged learners and encouragers that are following up with those that come to Sunday schools and RFN and other places. We need a culture of formal and informal teaching where each of us spur one another on in the word of God. Today, we have many fall festival door hangers right outside this door. There are 15 stacks that need to go to houses in this neighborhood that they would come to a fall festival and hear the good news of the gospel and see the goodness of God in this community. Who from this room is going to leave here and go on the ground into our neighborhoods and hand out These door hangers. Will you be the one? Has God called you to lead at the head or on the ground? Who can you raise up to replace yourself in leadership? You see, all of us must labor together to build God's kingdom. And those with great expectation for God will prepare and deploy great leaders. Secondly, we must prepare by depending on our God. We know that man looks at the outer appearance of a person, but the Lord looks at the heart. We need to prepare people to lead, but we also need to prepare hearts 
to depend. But we have a central problem, don't we? If we look at the mirror, we see that from age to age, our hearts are filled with self-love, self-assertion, selfish independence. And if you don't believe me, spend some time with a toddler who has started to realize that she can do some things for herself. With a low guttural growl, you may occasionally hear her say, I do it. Or when you do something against her desire, she might say, don't do that. But have you recognized your own selfishness lately? You see, all Ellie does is actually expose my own selfishness as a father. Because there are some times when Ellie won't sleep and she needs data playtime. And I complain that I need to go to sleep so I can do the important work of ministry. Not realizing that God has also called me to the important work of parenting. When she wakes up earlier than I expect, I can groan that my time for personal peace has been intruded on by a toddler not realizing that that is quality time for me to disciple my daughter. And when she prefers chicken nuggets over a beautifully prepared dinner from her mom, we can often feel discouraged that we wasted our time and feel unregarded by our toddler. When a nine-hour drive turns into a 12-hour drive and you stopped almost every rest stop and it didn't seem to change anything, we can start to question why did we bring the toddler to begin with? You see, fasting as a practice can humble ourselves to seek the Lord. The Israelites were right now in a very desperate situation that has humbled them to seek the Lord and his help. So Ezra has has planned out every detail, right? He's gotten all of his leaders in place. He has gotten resources from the king. He has the favor of King Artaxerxes. And the only uncertainty is what he'll face on the road. You see, a large group of traveling people with resources could easily attract an ambush of enemies. The king would have provided not only all the resources of financial needs, but he also would have provided soldiers. He would have supported them and protected them. But instead of seeking the protection of King Artaxerxes, Ezra was ashamed to ask the king for help. It wasn't because the king wouldn't help him, nor was he ashamed to ask because it was wrong to seek military assistance. We see later on, Nehemiah seeks military assistance as he rebuilds the wall. So why is Ezra ashamed to ask? Well, the text says that he told the king, the hand of our God is for good for those who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. He had declared that God was his defender, that God was his protector, that God was the shield about him and that God would take care of them. Many of these kings among these nations prided themselves in their great power or the greater power of their gods. I think about Egypt. When the Lord brought plagues on Egypt, he was sending a message that he is greater than all the false gods of the nations. In a similar manner, Ezra is bearing witness to King Artaxerxes that he does not need the king's power because he worships the king, the true king over heaven and earth. God will protect him. And in rejecting this assistance, he is declaring God's supremacy over all creation and over every enemy. But was he making a rash statement? Was he rejecting this assistance because he was trying to prove something? Maybe his prayer was more like what Derek Thomas mentions in his commentary. Lord, perhaps I shouldn't have said what I said back there. I shouldn't have presented it in such a black and white scenario. But I did, and now your reputation is at stake. If I back down and ask for help, it will look as though I don't believe in your power. And you will be seen as just another deity among all others in Persia. 
Overlook my hastiness and show yourself to be the God of covenant, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who keeps covenant with your fallible and often foolish people. So Ezra fasted. He prayed to humble himself before God and to seek from God. How does fasting humble ourselves? You see, we spend most of our days eating our daily food at our table, enjoying the prosperity of our daily labor, and we can easily become prideful. We forget that it is the Lord who has gifted us. It is the Lord who has provided for us life, breath, and everything else. Fasting, first of all, humbles us to acknowledge every good gift comes from God the Father who does not change. Fasting also humbles us in a very experiential way as we feel the weakness of our body. Our strength diminishes due to a lack of nourishment. Fasting also humbles us because we realize that we are so very dependent on resources outside of ourselves. We need daily bread to give us daily energy to accomplish daily tasks. And when we take bread away, we see how feeble we truly are. To grow in true dependence, we must humble ourselves. But we also must seek the Lord. Notice that the next phrase says, He humbled Himself before God. Notice that just like Jesus commanded in His fast to not do this before the eyes of man, to show that we're greater than others, but that we are to do our fast before God. When we fast, we don't make ourselves look gaunt and gloomy so that people see our suffering. It was done before God as an act of worship. And whenever we fast, we first seek for God, and then we seek from God. We do not first ask God a request, but we ask God for himself. We ask him to be our life and our nourishment. We remember, as Jesus says, that he is the bread of life who fills our souls. We confess that we are more than just material bodies. We are bodies and souls. Our soul needs the life-sustaining goodness of God as our bodies need the life-sustaining nourishment of food. John Piper says it best. He says, The supremacy of God in all things is the great reward that we long for in fasting. His supremacy in our own affections, in all of our life choices. His supremacy in the purity of the church. His supremacy in the salvation for the lost. His supremacy for the establishing of righteousness and justice. And his supremacy for the joy of all peoples and the evangelization of the world. Fasting also seeks from God. We see their desperate need for God to protect them on the way. This is because they are transporting not only people, but also three and three-fourths tons of gold and 20 tons of silver. So they sought protection and help from God. And the Lord answered their prayer. Verse 31 says, The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. When we see seek something from God, fasting can emphasize the desperation of our dependency. Arthur Wallace explains that fasting is calculated to bring a note of urgency and importunity into our praying and to give force to our pleading in the court of heaven. The man who prays with fasting is giving heaven notice that he is truly in earnest. Not only so, but he is also expressing his earnestness in a divine appointed way. He is using a means that God has chosen to make his voice heard on high. The application to this point is both very simple and very difficult. I want to encourage you to fast, but not for show. 
Fast so that you would humble yourself to seek for God and to seek from God. If you want to see God do a great work in our generation, then you must prepare your heart to depend upon God. So what situations right now do you need desperately and dependently to seek the Lord in? Take it all to the Lord in prayer. You can join us every Tuesday, the first of the month. We always come together, we fast, and we pray about concerns in the church, in the city, the nation, and the world. But make a habit of fasting that you would depend upon your God. Lastly, to prepare a great work, we must devote great resources. We need human resources of leaders. We need divine resources of his provision and protection. And we also need financial resources. We already noted that King Artaxerxes has donated literally tons of money for the progress of this work. And we notice how Ezra defines these resources in the text and then how he delivers them. After describing the amount of resources given, Ezra says in 828, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of our fathers. The king may have given his money to declare his greatness to Israel, but even this offering of pomp and pride was holy to the Lord. Not only do these people belong to God as his creation, but these resources also belong to God. They are holy to the Lord because they are ultimately gifts from God's hand. When David first gave to the first building of the temple, he fleshes out this doctrine of divine ownership to God's glory. He begins with God's greatness and glory and then clarifies God's gift. This is in First Chronicles 29. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor, they come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your right hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things, hear this, come from you, and of our own we have given you. All that is in heaven and on earth belongs to God. God makes us great by his design and he strengthens us to succeed. So all of our giving to God comes from God. So we're not adding anything to God when we pay a tithe, when we give our offering to God. But rather, we are simply devoting our resources to him as a free will offering of thanksgiving. We see this emphasis of thanksgiving when they arrive in the land. A good portion of this money was given to sacrifice burnt offerings. These offerings were whole offerings burned completely to God as a gift solely given to him. It is a way of acknowledging the Lord as the giver of every gift and receiver of thanks. As Romans 11 says, from him and through him and therefore to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Realizing the holiness of this gift, they guarded these gifts until they weighed them before the chief priests and the Levites, the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. They guarded these resources to make sure that every penny collected went to the Lord and his service. In a time when we've seen many financial scandals due to greedy leaders, we see that Ezra chose the path of integrity rather than indulgence. 
And the church should always ensure godly accounting of money for the glory of God and the good of all people. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they offer the most important resource to the Lord. Look at Ezra 8.35. We see that after offering 12 bulls and 96 rams and 77 lambs as burnt offerings to the Lord, Ezra offered up as a sin offering 12 male goats. This repetition of 12 represents one offering for each tribe of the people of Israel. And what the people needed most was not great leaders, it was not great finances, but it was great grace from a merciful God who forgives sinners. You see, our greatest problem is the good hand of the Lord is only for those who seek the Lord. But those who forsake the Lord have the power of God's wrath against them. Our great problem and Israel's great problem is all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned everyone to our own way. And because of this forsaking of the Lord, we will one day face God's wrath against us. What could take us from the hand of God's judgment to the good hand of God's grace? Brothers and sisters, the Lord himself laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus died on the cross, taking upon himself the brunt of God's wrath. God's good hand is for us because Christ's bloody hands were nailed to the tree. And this is our hope in the gospel. God has canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with all of his legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And because Christ bore God's powerful hand of judgment, we get his good hand of grace. Christ daily intercedes for us even now. He intercedes before the Father with his precious blood to plead God's mercy on our behalf. Therefore, no matter our great sin... We can still do great work for his glory, even sinners like us that need Jesus. We can expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. In a Baptist minister's meeting, young William Carey preached a very persuasive sermon challenging the ministers to begin a great work of sharing the gospel around the world. Reverend John Ryland blasted Carey, saying, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid and mine. Stirred up by the cynicism of this comment, William Carey stood up with a strong voice and he made a stirring call to action in a booklet called An Inquiry to the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. This little book argued that the Great Commission to the Apostles is the ongoing commission of the church. He closes his inquiry with this statement. We are exhorted to lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth destroy, where neither thieves break through and steal. It is also declared that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. What a heaven will it be to see the many myriads of poor heathens of Britons among the rest who by their labors have been brought to the knowledge of God. Surely a crown of rejoicing like this is worth aspiring to. Surely it is worthwhile to lay ourselves out with all of our might in promoting the cause and kingdom of Christ. This is the great expectation of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. So let us practice great preparation. 
Let us lay ourselves out with all our might and with all of his strength in promoting the cause and kingdom of Christ. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, blessed Savior, we thank you that all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to you. Help be with us with might and strength and grace as we go from this place into the world to promote the kingdom of Christ, the cause of Christ. Compel us by your love that we be transformed by your grace to be a people who go on mission and rebuild for your glory and your kingdom. Through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.